you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, so we're going to pick up where we left off last Lord's Day as we're covering a few broad strokes, Genesis 1 and 2, and we're going to be thinking about connecting some dots and some broad strokes in the painting of the picture of the story of what God's doing in us and through our lives. To be able to get, understand that, we have to start at the beginning and see where the trajectory began, and as we began to... Uh, leave Matthew 28, and we see that we're going to go and be discipling the nations. We have to understand what that means in the context of what God intends, and he begins it right back here. So we're going to now begin in Genesis chapter 2 this morning. I'll read the entire uh, chapter. Now hear the word of the Lord. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown. But the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out from Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first was Pishon, and it is the one that skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The, land of, the name of the third river is Hittichel. It is the one which passes or goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever called Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Herein ends the reading of the word of God. Our gracious Father, as we now meditate upon your word from this important chapter of your Bible, we pray that the Spirit of God would fall fresh upon us and give us the discernment of the truth that is before us. With such beauty and glory there is here, we pray that we would have the Spirit pointing to us how we are to be involved in your kingdom work. We pray, Lord, that you would guide us and apply these things to us corporately as the people of God and individually as members of your church. We pray you would be glorified to bring forth much fruit from this message. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Last Lord's Day, we looked from Genesis 1 as we considered Adam a king. This week, we're going to see Adam the priest. And we have these two collected together that identify our role in this world as kings and priests. It was that way from the beginning, and Revelation reminds us that it has not been changed. So from the beginning, God's intent for Adam, and as I might remind you, the word Adam is also the word mankind. And so when we talk about Adam, he also is mankind. All of mankind was in Adam, and he is the representative head of the human race. But from the very beginning, Adam was designed to be a priest king. Both our identity as humans and our purpose and our role comes from this role of being a priest and a king. How we are to live these things out is important for us to know, and that's why we're going back to the very beginning of its source. But this is the very reason that God made man and created man in his own image. And so the image of God in which we are made has everything to do with how we are to go about as kings and priests. And and so here we are understanding a little bit more of the intent and divine design from the beginning And even after it went all wrong, how we still retain uh, this image of God, albeit marred and scarred from the fall, and we are restored in Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. So as we're making our way through these couple of chapters in Genesis, let's remind us what we're doing here. Here we are in creation, and this creation is God's temple project. He is establishing and creating a temple, and these six days of creation and the seventh day of Sabbath were stages of a temple building process, which we will later come to see in the tabernacle and the temple and in Christ's resurrection united with his church. The temple is a place where heaven and earth meet. It's the intersection where God who is eternal, immortal, invisible, then meets with and dwells with his earthly creation in this intersection that we know of as the temple. And that's what he's doing in the garden. And as we will later see in the tabernacle, this three-tiered universe, cosmos, it is a microcosmos of what God is doing in the earth. So we have the Holy of Holies, which identifies with 
Eden, we have the, the, the holy place where man interacted with God, and that was the garden east of Eden. We have the court of the temple, which then corresponds to the rest of the world. While it is this unilateral kind of cosmos, we also see it has a dimensionality to it as well. And so we see Eden uh, in Ezekiel referenced as a mountain. And so we have a three-tiered kind of universe. Genesis 2 will give us more details now of creation of man and his role here and this relationship that he has in God's garden temple and God's sanctuary that he created for his glory and where he decides to come down and dwell. In fact, it was the very reason he created this is so that he can take pleasure among his creation. Now last week we consider Adam as mankind as king where he is to take dominion over all of the earth and subdue it for the glory of God so that as God's the knowledge of the glory of God will go throughout all of the world as the waters do cover the sea it is through the image of God that that would take place this week i want us to consider adam as a priest and what that means in part of the narrative of God's great story. So as we consider this this morning, I want us to consider first of all from verse 7 how God forms man because he forms him in a very unique way unlike he did with the other creation. As we saw last Lord's Day, he created man in his own image. And then Genesis 2 verse 7 says he took He formed man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. We see the making of man consisted of two parts, the earth and heaven itself, or the breath of God. The word breath is the same word as spirit. These two basic elements in which man was made The breath of God and the dirt of the ground is what makes him what he is. He is both an earthly creature made of this earth and made for the realm of this earth. And we find here in that we have a sense of belonging here upon this earth. We are identified with the soil here in the earth. We find our home in this way. And that is the greatest hope that we have as Christians. It's not to leave here and go to heaven. It is in the resurrection where we will be raised in the likeness of Christ and where heaven comes down to the earth to join in this great cosmos temple and the very consummation at the end when God's glory comes upon here in fullness. The earthly composition has been a part of us from the very beginning. And it gives us a sense of identity here upon the earth. But man is also brought to life by the breath of God. As that formless matter of dust shaped into the likeness of a man lay there lifeless, it was when he came to life, when God breathed his spirit into him, and that spirit now animates man and gives him life. 
We almost have a picture of a, of a dead man laying with another man crouching over him, giving him CPR, breathing into his mouth life. I remember one time when I was on a scuba diving trip that we were coming up out of a spring and, and there lay a man on the bottom of this spring of clear water in about 15 feet of water and he's laying lifeless on the bottom. About that time, a cry was heard and people jumped in after him and they drug him over to the side of the dock and they pumped out the water in his chest and they were breathing into him until finally he spit water out and he came back to life, much to our uh, relief and great joy. But here at the very beginning, there was no life at all to be resuscitated. Man was just a piece of clay, a very important piece of clay in which God then forms and then he breathes into him his own spirit. And man became lively and animated with the Spirit of God while upon the earth. But apart from God's Spirit, man is lifeless. That's true today as well. You may be here and you might have this body, you might even have a breath in you, and you might be able to see and touch and feel, but if you do not have the Spirit of God in you, you are a lifeless creature. You are not even fully human in the great design in which God has established. So man's makeup himself is very temple-like, is it not? Uh, where the intersection where heaven and earth come together, we have a man created out of the earth, and yet we have the Spirit of God, and he's very temple-like. Later in Scripture, Paul is going to inform the Corinthians of this very fact. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you are bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and with your spirit, which are God's. See, every Christian has been brought back in Christ to the fullness of which he was originally intended, and yet even in a, a greater elevation from that, in a sense, because we will have complete resurrection apart from all of the potential of even falling again. And as we have in our bodies individually this temple, this, this holy intersection with eternal God, and even experiencing him in our own realm of, of time and space and, and mass, we, we now have this restored in us with Christ. So from the get-go, man was created in this very special way, not ex nihilo, out of nothing. Not man, but with existing substance. Very deliberately from the earth, very intentionally from God himself, establishing his very identity and his role and his purpose here upon the earth in relation to that image that we, the, the, the one that we then are the image bearers of. 
So man was designed to continue God's work here. As God worked here in creation and he rested on the seventh day, then man was enjoined into the creative work of God and the pleasure of God by extending that garden and to show forth God's glory throughout all of his earth through his image. See, But man was also designed to fellowship with God in such a way that God would take pleasure in fellowshipping with him. If there's any point that I could just get across this morning that would encourage you is that God created you in such a way, such a deliberate design that he desires and he takes pleasure in fellowshipping with you. We are worshiping creatures made in the image of God that God takes pleasure in. He he delights to fellowship with us. There's something in our human nature that we love to be affirmed as humans. And and a lot of times that affirmation, we, we, we tend to... To, to have when there's someone of great respect or importance or fame in which we can come close to and they can give us a little bit of their time and attention. For someone that is very famous to pay you just a little bit of attention, whether it's to stop for just a moment to give you an autograph or just, well, I guess today it's to give a selfie, right? Uh, Just a little bit of attention from that famous world-renowned person, we then will publicize it. We find a little bit of affirmation in our humanity from things like that. It gives us a great sense of immediate delight and joy that someone that important would pay just a little bit of attention to us. And yet how much more profound and delightful and joy-filling to know that the God of creation who created everything around us and the earth is the Lord's and the fullness not only desires to pay you a little bit of attention, not only to give you a little bit of a time for a selfie and autograph, but to actually invite you into his home and prepare a lavish feast for us and to give us of life with himself and share life of himself with us as creatures. How much worth and self-affirmation and and all of the encouragement and the honor does your creator give to us every Lord's Day as he delights He delights, he takes pleasure in his people. It's an astounding thing that we really do not absorb fully. Man was created of the earth, brought to life by the breath of God himself. And at this point in the creation narrative, there is only Adam. Woman is not yet created. The rest of us are not here. As I remind you, Adam's name means mankind. So in him, he signified all the representation of all of humanity. Now, woman was made differently than man in some sense, but she contained all of the substance of man because she was created out of man, taken a rib from Adam, this living organism 
living cells and flesh. And then God creates with man in the much of the same way. He, she, he takes this substance and then he breathes into her the breath of life and then brings the woman to the man. And man says, Eureka, this is great. Uh, and he really did say something like that, just in maybe the Hebrew language. Uh, it was the greatest thing because he couldn't find anything comparable to him. And he lamented, and, and God was putting this intentional longing in his heart. And he's, it's the first time God says in his creation, this is not good. Now, he knew what he was going to do. He knew he was going to finish the course. But when man, God puts a longing in man for something, God also provides the answer for that which man longs for. And so God brings the woman to man, and now together he, them, created in the image of God. Now they are expressing this Trinitarian society of life that would then carry the dominion and the priesthood throughout all of the world, showcasing its creator. And so now her special makeup made her especially fit in a relationship with man, and likewise man in a relationship with her, with the Spirit of God at their center. And that's in verse 7. As we go to verse 8, then God establishes a paradise. We have this place called Eden. We're not given much about it except it's introduced to us. God established Eden here. And he establishes this special place called Eden. And in Ezekiel 28, Eden is even referred to a mountain. And so we have this three-tiered cosmos, both in its vertical dimensionality as well as its horizontal dimensionality in this place that we know as, as earth, heaven and earth, cosmos. Eden is the high point. It's the heavenly dwelling place of God in his created cosmos. It is from Eden that the river of life flows out into the garden and from the garden out into the uttermost parts of the cosmos. In the east of Eden, he establishes a garden. And this garden is identified later as the little microcosm of this creation we would find in the holy place where we find the, the altar of incense and the table of showbread and the the, the lampstand, and here's the place where man interacts with God. The garden would be this setting for humanity's fellowship with God on a regular basis. It represented this territorial space within creation that is qualitatively better than all of the rest of creation. It is a very unique place where God invites human beings into this state of joy and bliss and harmony with God along with one another, along with the rest of his creation, and along with the, uh, the, 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 the animals that he's created here. There is this unity of the cosmos where God is very present with his creatures, where we are the image of God in that place representing the rest of creation there before the presence of God. That's why later we're going to find things of his creation like, like trees and, and, and things like this imprinted right into the temple that Solomon built. 
In this place, this, this garden, is the place where there is peace and wholeness. This is the concept of shalom. Shalom is really how Jerusalem is, is labeled. It is the place of peace and, and bliss and wholeness. And that's why the often Jewish greeting shalom is more than just a hello or peace. It really is may the wholeness of your humanity be upon you. Mankind was designed to belong in this garden. It is our home in the ultimate sense. Here we come this morning. We are in the garden. We should sing about it, eh? (laughs) Paradise is a place without pain and suffering. It's a time where love and peace flourish. Paradise is the object of all human hopes and dreams in every generation. It's it's actually woven into our very fiber of essence because we are made out of its dirt. For every person who's ever experienced pain and suffering or injustice or the death of a close loved one, We long for something better. In fact, it is our instinct that we do not accept this present world as it is. There is something better. Some of you this morning need to experience this garden in this life because of some of the challenges that you're facing And that garden paradise can be experienced sacramentally this day in Christ as you trust in him in this place. East. The garden was east. It was east in Eden. And that that word east, is we should not skip over it too quickly because there is very deliberateness in all of the words that the Holy Spirit chooses when he then reveals to us of this very cosmos and the pattern after which the later tabernacle and then the later temple and then the ultimate Christ resurrection united with his church temple. East. East. The garden is oriented in the east of Eden. East is a biblical direction. It's the direction where the sun rises. East represents life. You see, this this orientation of east and west along the axis of east and west is is even mimicked and copied throughout all of the world and, and cultures and civilizations alike. If you were to take a trip right now down the Nile River in Egypt, you're going to find life on the east and death on the west. You will see temples of life on the east bank, while monuments of death, the pyramids, the tombs, the mortuary temple are on the west side. You're going to see in Europe that all of their cathedrals are oriented along this east and west axis where the, the altar is at the east. It's the place that represents life. And this description of the garden is the sphere in which we have fellowship with God. And it is in the east. 
the place where the sun rises, the place where life is found. We have there in verse 9, trees. Trees are in the garden. And there are three categories of trees. And I want you to notice probably the first category that we skip over with way too quickly. It says in verse 9, And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow. That is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now let's, let's don't rush. Let's don't rush. Every tree he calls to grow, which is first what? What? Do you know in our day in which we live in this postmodern world, we depreciate beauty? We, we have a sense that this enlightened uh, mankind that is empiricist and which is taken in a rational manner has marginalized beauty that it is only a matter of form and not function. And we have so depreciated in our secular humanism that we skip right over words like this and not feel like beauty is a transcendent value of God himself. He makes a point that he puts trees there which are pleasant to the eyes and good for food. Orchards of all kinds of luxurious and flavorful fruit. Trees that are aesthetically pleasing and also practical. Have you ever stopped to just look at the trees that God has made? Have you ever stopped to take in the beauty of the trees? And I don't mean just in the fall with all of their shades of color, but even every day. Whether it be in the time of the winter when there are no leaves, or the time of the summer when the leaves are full, there is a beauty about trees. I love trees. I love them in all kinds of ways. They're rooted in the earth and they, they grow up toward heaven, like a, a church steeple. I should turn that around. The church steeple is like the tree. <laughs> uh. God created an atmosphere of aesthetically beautiful, luxurious, celebratory feasting with him. That's what was just described in what he put in the garden for us to enjoy in his presence. This is man's home and sanctuary with God, and God has just given us a luxurious place that we can enjoy with all of our earthly senses, the beauty that God has made, it's such a lovely place. It's so beautiful and appealing and attractive to us, so delightful to man, which accentuates the very folly of humanity and his rebellion. What could have made one tree of the knowledge of good and evil so attractive in comparison to the full range of colors and fragrances and tastes that already abounded in the garden. Well, that's the first category of tree. The second category of tree we find there is the tree of life. Also in the garden were the tree of life and also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The second category is this tree of life. The tree of life represented life actually beyond even the original life of creation that God had established back in verse 7. 
The tree of life allows man to transcend the state he was created on the sixth day and to move into a higher dimension of eternal life and immortality. As one partakes of this sacramental fruit by faith, one participates in eternal life. After man, was, after man rebelled, he was kicked out of the garden. Angels, cherubim, were put at the entrance of the garden to guard man from ever coming in in his sinful state to partake of this tree of life. God did not want us to be fixed in this way in our sinfulness. When Christ then restored the way of the entry back to the tree of life, we now have the highest potential and the potency of life available to in the garden for us once again through the last Adam who then made the way back into the garden for us. Where the veil was rent in two. And we come now to participate by faith in the sacrament of the body and blood of Jesus. Who is the tree of life. In the garden they ate of the tree of life. Jesus is the tree of life from which we now feed to nourish our souls to the highest potency of life. Our eternal life does not begin once we die and go to heaven. Our eternal life begins the moment you begin eating of the tree of life. The moment that you come into Christ. The moment you feed upon him and trust in him and begin to be nourished in his sustenance. To partake of Christ is to partake of eternal life. Even now, the Lord's Supper that we'll have momentarily is the sacramental meal now in which we eat. Is, and we do by faith, we are participating in Christ himself. We feed on Christ. We're nourished with his eternal and perpetual life in the fullest sense. Life that transcends the grave. And then the third category of tree was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This was the forbidden fruit. It first refers to the knowledge of what prospers life and what destroys life. The old saying, ignorance is bliss, is very true when it comes to this particular tree of knowledge. It also refers to an ethical knowledge. The temptation to its fruit really reflects humanity's temptation to seize individualistic autonomy. To live independently without restrictions or rules. See, that, that is man's temptation. To be drawn toward this tree. But that is not the way God made us. We are not designed to live independently. We are not designed to live alone. We are not designed to be autonomous. Our lives are not private. We're covenantal. My sin and your sin that we do in the privacy of our closets and rooms that no one else knows about has 
a detrimental effect upon the entirety of the body of Christ, even if they don't know about it. We're covenantal. We're in this together. We need to lean into each other and embrace not the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but the tree of life. We are not to live individualistic, autonomous lives. That is not how God has created us. He has created us in a Trinitarian unity. He has not created us to be private. For we can never flee the face of our Creator Himself. And so to take of this forbidden fruit is to forsake God's sovereignty to seek to become gods themselves. These trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, are sacramental. They are symbols of a greater truth that lies behind them. And to eat of them is to partake of the realities to which these trees point. And then out from there, we have rivers. We have trees. Now we have rivers. In verses 10 through 14, we read of one river that then breaks off into four. And the one river starts in the very Eden, and then it flows out into the garden, and there it waters the trees, including the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And from there it breaks into four river heads, and there it goes throughout all the rest of the world to water the rest of God's creation. All civilizations from the beginning of time have understood that water is the symbol of life. Our bodies are made up of about 60% water, and modern medical science at least will tell us that, and as a general rule, we can only live about three days without any water. We need water to survive. Water is important. It's necessary. And that's why civilizations will grow and be established along the banks of water sources or rivers. And here we see a river of water. It's the source of all earthly life, and it is flowing out of Eden from the very presence of God out into the garden and to the rest of the world. And we see in Ezekiel's depiction of the later temple, this river is flowing from the threshold of the temple, and it's the trees on both sides of the bank of this river. The waters of this river then make even the seawater fresh. It gives life to the creatures and it causes the leaves for the healing to blossom among the banks of the river. In Revelation, we read something very similar in Revelation 22, where this is all going and why we see this connection with the 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 new heavens and the new earth, and in Revelation 21 and 22, through the temple, back to Genesis 1 and 2, where we are. In Revelation, we see this river that springs out from under the throne of God, and from there it flows out into the new Jerusalem to water the tree of life with its 12 seasonal fruits, whose leaves were for the healing of the nations. And then from there it flows out to the rest of the cosmos, bringing life and abundance. And so was the river in Eden that flowed into, into the garden to give life, including these two sacramental trees. 
Life begins with God and the outward flow from his presence. When we think about our mission in the world, and when we think about our commission in Matthew 28 to go make disciples, it is that which must come from the very presence of God himself. Missions out into the world begins at the throne of God in worship. This is the living waters that Jesus was talking to the woman at the well when they were discussing the place of worship. We too often seek life and fulfillment from other sources, like entertainment or empty relationships or ceaseless activity, and and yet we're seeking life in these empty ways. But hear the words of Jeremiah the prophet who rebuked our fathers when he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And that is very true. So much of the church and people today that are looking for sustenance in life, looking for purpose in life, looking for joy and satisfaction from things that will not bring it. Life is found in the presence of God in worship. You've heard me say it many times before that all of the ministry here springs from the fountainhead of worship. Because this and before the presence of God is where those living waters then go from here out into the garden, out into the rest of the world, and we go as life bearers and light of Christ to bring his life-giving sustenance and abundance to the rest of the world. It's the only way that can work. That's why it's so important for us to gather here and delight to be here in the garden this day and the abundance of Drinking deeply of Christ here. But too often we, like our fathers, do not give ourselves to private worship or corporate worship. We often come up empty. And then notice with me that Adam is the priest. God placed Adam in this temple garden sanctuary to engage it. And that's what we do with the priest. In fact, when God created his temple, the last thing he puts there is an image of himself. And and the world has copied that many times over in different cultures and civilizations with their false gods. The image in the temple. Well, that's what we are. But he puts us there as as a living image, and we have work, and we have service to do. And he he describes this with two verbs there. And he takes man, and he puts him in the garden to tend it and to keep it. These two words, to tend and to keep, then define man as a priest within this garden temple. The word tend is the very word that means to serve. Serve. We are called to serve God in his garden. And secondly, the word keep is this word to guard, to protect, to protect the garden. We are to protect the garden. We are to keep it holy. We are to keep it free from corruption and intrusion. And these two words, to to serve and to keep, are later used of the priestly office. In Numbers 18, Verses 5 and 6, 
Moses has given the instructions to the priests and the Levites, and he says, And you shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar, that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. And behold, I have taken your brother, the Levites, from among the people of Israel, and they are a gift to you, given to the Lord to do the service, there's the word, of the tent of meeting. The Levites and the priests were chosen tribe in order to minister in God's sanctuary as the order of our original creation established us in the garden to tend it, to serve God, to labor in the sanctuary, and to guard it from intrusion. As a priest, Adam, over all mankind representing us all, was to work and keep the garden. His activity of service and his keeping were worship. As we tend to the sanctuary of God, as we serve him with our gifts, as we keep ourselves and his church holy and without defilement, we do the work of priests in his sanctuary. Priests are also representatives. At this point, Adam was alone. He represented all of mankind, including woman. And Adam represented all of mankind, which we will later see. Christ, the last Adam, represents a new race. Adam represented all of the dominion over which he was in charge, all of the earthly creation. And so he then sums up all of creation's praise and he comes into the sanctuary and he brings it forth to God in voice, in song, in prayer, in praise, in worship of its creator. But he's given a very specific instructions on the manner of how he was to serve God and to guard or keep the temple holy. To keep guard, uh, God's guard impure and undefiled, man was to keep God's word. Obeying God's word, and that's where God gives him, gives him the instruction of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he takes some time with, with Adam to help him to understand, you have to obey me here. Obeying God's word was in itself the way to keep the garden. Man was to obey God in not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He had all this other abundance. He had all this other beauty. But as he obeyed the word of God, that was guarding God's garden. In doing so, sin would not enter this world. It is only through the sin of one man that sin entered this world. And death by sin, and so death passed upon all men because we have all sinned. In Adam, we sin. Now, the temple and Torah, the Torah is the law of God, often referred to as the first five books of the the. Old Testament, and this was what the Jews really clung to, the temple and the Torah go hand in hand. The temple and the Word of God go inseparably. The Jews understood the relationship between temple and Torah. Protecting the temple was protecting the Word of God. 
The whole Torah was summed up in the Ten Commandments, which was found in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, in the utmost holiest part of the temple. Temple and Torah are inseparable. And to keep the temple undefiled meant that the the law of God was to be kept, to be obeyed, because it was the very expression of the nature of God. The surprising and the unexpected thing is when the temple and the word of God were fulfilled in the last Adam when the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. See? And so it was with Adam in the temple garden. See, we do not live by bread alone, but by Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Adam had a responsibility as a priest of the garden to keep the garden pure by keeping God's word. And likewise, we too as priests are to keep God's sanctuary pure and holy by obeying the gospel. Being a disciple of Christ means obedience to the gospel and observing all the things that Christ taught us to do. We are to keep ourselves holy and pure. In fact, we are to pursue holiness. We are also to keep the church holy. We are guardians. We have been given a special deposit of the gospel itself. And we are stewards over this to preserve the holiness and the integrity of the truth. And we do that by obeying God's word. Adam failed in his duty here as priest, as we know. He allowed that slithering serpent to come into the garden. And how was he kicked out of the temple paradise? Because the serpent brought doubt to God's word in man's heart. Man allowed himself to doubt God's word and was subject to the deception of the serpent. First, the woman was deceived, but man, not being deceived, knew. But yet with doubt and enticement, he ate. Eden, this place of great satisfaction and enjoyment in the presence of God, Man was now banished from the garden. Satan took over dominion of the earth. He did in a very literal way. All the way up until the time that Christ took it back for mankind. God put cherubim at the entrance to protect the garden from the re-entry of man to take of the tree of life, the cherubim now. So now what was given to man has been turned over to the angelic realm. Cherubim now guard the paradise and the tree of life all the way up until Christ 
the last Adam, remade the entry into the garden sanctuary. In Christ, both our kingship and our priesthood have been now reestablished, and our entry back into the garden sanctuary is available for us to eat of the tree of life. And our mission to the world as a kingdom of priests and to all the nations is to take the glory of God of this sanctuary and expand it to all of the world. And we do that with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Israel's relationship to the world in Exodus 19 was that we read earlier was as a priest. Israel as a nation was like a corporate priest who serves society and all of the world and mediates God's blessing by being set apart unto God. And all of Israel is a priesthood by virtue of its obedience to God's covenant. And by their obedience, they represent God to the nations and become that which will draw the nations to turn and to trust Yahweh, who then teaches Israel and who protects Israel. And in that way, Israel was a priest to the rest of creation. They mediate the very blessings of God to others in accordance to divine intention for Abraham and his seed, according to the promise that he would be a blessing to all of the nations. Now, Israel was an object lesson of which the church is the fulfillment in Christ. See, the sanctuary of God today is the church united to Christ. The temple is the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. The temple is the church. The temple is your body. It is your body which is a member of the church, which is united together with the resurrected body of Christ. That is the sanctuary of God. That is where we are today. We are in the garden. And we're about to eat of the tree of life. That is our identity. That is who we are. We are priests and kings, and we are now seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus, co-reigning with him, enjoying his great high priesthood, who enters behind the veil, and now he bids us to come to receive the mercy and the grace in our time of need, and to boldly come because we've been made fit to come by his grace. And when we leave here, we need to share this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with the nations so that it will be attractive to them. This is a beautiful place. And we need to maintain the beauty of God's holy church by obeying his word. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, teach us of these profound truths that you delight and you take pleasure in your people in this holy sanctuary that you have created. May we drink of the rivers of the living waters deeply this day and may we feed upon the tree of life with great pleasure and delight. We thank you, Father, for the Lord Jesus Christ who is the temple, who is the Lamb of God, who is the life, who is the resurrection, who is the bread of life, who is 
our meaning and our purpose in our life. We pray as we come to the table that it would have deep and profound meaning as we now partake sacramentally of him who in reality is behind this bread and wine and by the power of the Holy Spirit is communicated to us not merely to take notice of us, not merely to give us your autograph, but Lord, you have put names upon each one of us and take notice of us, invited us, and now you take time with us and you delight in sharing your heart with us and showing us the beauty of the garden through the eyes of faith. Strengthen us, O Lord, we pray that we can be changed more into your likeness each day. In Jesus' name, amen.